0: Government surveillance, climate change, mass shootings continue to dominate the headlines, and it seems as though the list of things that we should be worried about continues to grow at an alarming rate. For example, as we approach the 2016 election, presidential candidates are drumming up fear of immigrants, refugees, and religious extremists. In uncertain times like these, the line between wariness and paranoia can start to blur. For this week's Please Explain, we're taking on the subject of paranoia, and joining me is psychologist and author David Laporte, whose new book is called Paranoid, Exploring Suspicion from the Dubious to the Delusional. It's published by Prometheus Books. I'm very pleased that he could join us today. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And we also invite our listeners to join in the conversation during these Please Explain segments. You can give us a call at 212-433-9692. Write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. David, um, have we come to use the word paranoia rather loosely? Um, In her op-ed column in yesterday's New York Times, Gail Collins wrote that the tone of Tuesday's presidential debate following Chris Christie's claim that America has been betrayed might be described as bellicose paranoia.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I think that, in a sense, the word paranoia has become a little bit like the word depression. So someone has a bad day and we say, oh, you're depressed today. Well, uh, you're sad, but you're probably not depressed. That's a clinical term, and I think the same thing applies for, for paranoia. So I think we are starting to throw this word around much like we do depression. Um, but I think it's—I uh, I don't think we can argue that. I, I, I agree that uh, there is this level of suspiciousness and concern that is uh, permeating our current environment.
0: Well, isn't uh, suspicion, if we don't want to call it paranoia, because paranoia should be clinical paranoia, isn't that uh, to something that to some degree affects everyone?
1: Absolutely. So, and I assume uh, there's an
0: evolutionary reason.
1: Yes. It, it's a normal emotion, it, um, it, it, and it's an important one, because suspicion and the ability to be suspicious in certain situations is going to keep you alive. Um, so not trusting everybody will mean that you won't be taken advantage of. And so, in a sense, it's, it's a little bit like sadness. Sadness, uh, while well both suspicion and, and sadness are unfortunate feelings, um, but they're, they're normal feelings that we have. And it's only when we sort of cross the line or get extreme that we start talking about clinical conditions like depression or paranoia.
0: What kinds of people might be especially susceptible to paranoia?
1: You know, it's an equal opportunity um, uh, kind of condition. So, um, uh, certainly um, uh, people of color. Um, uh, because, in a sense, they have uh, experienced um, you know, situations and certainly our, our you know, recent uh, events that have occurred in the news have supported this, that they have been the target of um, harassment, um, mistrust by others, and in turn they are mistrustful, in particular of uh, you know, the police and, and authorities. So uh, it's a second group are, are actually immigrants. Uh, immigrants are much more likely to suffer from uh, increased suspiciousness and paranoia Than are other individuals, and then uh, you know. Then when you get past those kinds of groups, really, uh, probably genetic factors and family background factors. Um, You know, if you grow up in a home where uh, you know you couldn't trust the neighbors and you always have to carry a gun and so forth, it's probably not surprising that you're going to turn out to be a little bit on the suspicious or paranoid side as well.
0: You're right that someone with paranoia is like a good crime novel detective
1: yeah there there you know there's always clues everywhere and what's interesting is that probably the, the changes in the brain that occur with people that have paranoia make events that would otherwise be you know kind of innocuous uh, suddenly they take on great meaning so you know a pack of cigarettes left on on a tabletop suddenly has great meaning to someone who is paranoid in part because that's the way their brain is wired to see it whereas the rest of us simply see it as a pack of cigarettes on uh, on the table now uh,
0: there's a delusional paranoia, which goes a little further. What are some of the common traits of that?
1: And that can take various forms, and, and those are certainly much more rare, but um, you know, when it, when it gets related to violence, they're, they're still as important. And so in delusional, violence, uh, delusional paranoia, what we're really talking about is it's something that we generally believe is not possible uh, or not very likely. So it is not very likely that the CIA is going to target one specific individual and beam uh, X-rays into that person's brain. That's just probably just not going to happen, even if it is technologically possible. So, uh, um, and, and delusional paranoia can take a variety of different forms. So, uh, delusional jealousy is a kind of a form of, of that as well. Um, and there's there's more rare forms. There are beliefs that other people have been substituted by imposters, and and they're plotting against somebody.
0: Do they tend to sometimes? Uh... Get together. I remember many years ago, uh, a couple handed out a uh, some mimeograph sheets in which they talked about how they everything was being done to them. Their house had been bugged, uh, their brains were being scanned, um, and they had been and it had been sold. And it, pretty much every show on Broadway had been based on some part of their life. But they seemed to be um, abetting each other in their paranoid fantasies.
1: Absolutely. In fact, there's a condition called folia du, which means madness of two, that, that's just that. Um, it is where two people who are close in proximity, usually family members, come to share the same um, delusional belief. That In fact, there are case studies of entire families um, um, experiencing this, but in a sense, one reinforces the, the um, paranoia in the other, and it just kind of ratchets itself up.
0: Is this uh, a form of schizophrenia? Because we also hear the phrase paranoid schizophrenia.
1: No, it's not. Uh, in in, this, in the schizophrenia, we really view that as a as a brain disorder. Um, and within schizophrenia, very commonly you do see paranoia. And that's the interesting thing about paranoia is that it's not restricted to these really severe conditions like um, you know schizophrenia. You find paranoia. In a wide variety of conditions. So many substance abusers, alcoholics, uh, amphetamine abusers, people with Alzheimer's, um, a wide variety of conditions will suffer from um, paranoia. In fact, when you look at people who are treated for psychological problems, fully 40% of them will um, exhibit some um, uh, form of paranoia.
0: When someone has extreme paranoia, are their symptoms episodic? Uh, Does it come in waves or are they always experiencing baseline symptoms?
1: Yeah, I think it's the latter. Um, while, as with any illness, there you know there are peaks and valleys as far as the symptoms are concerned. Generally speaking, um, people who are um, uh, feeling um, paranoid will uh, will continue to do so. They actually did some a uh, study in Switzerland once in which they um, they found that between four to nine percent of people they asked um, you know really said things like, "Yeah, I, you know people are out to get me." And then they followed them for the next 20 years, and what they found was that it remained quite stable. So I think we're all born with some level of suspiciousness that is um, trained by our family and our early experiences, and um, it, it tends to remain that way.
0: I'm speaking with David J. LaPorte, a professor of psychology and director of clinical training in the clinical psychology doctoral program at Indiana University at Pennsylvania. His latest book is called Paranoid, Exploring Suspicion from the Dubious to the Delusional. And uh, it is what we're discussing today on today's Please Explain. His book is published by Prometheus Books. This is WNYC, WNYC.org. And a reminder that at one forty, WNYC will have live coverage of President Obama's news conference from the White House. You can listen to it on AM 820 new jersey public radio or stream it online at wmyc.org meanwhile our conversation with david laporte and your calls will continue on 93.9 fm and uh so uh, we have some calls coming in uh let's take a call and then we will uh, i'll ask some more of my questions bob from manhattan are you're on the air
2: um, it, it seemed to me, I was listening earlier, and you mentioned that we, you know, the, that incident about putting the wrong relationship to, let's say, a, a symbolic thing like a, a pack of cigarettes on a table. And it occurred to me that human beings are very talented at pattern and recognitions and are always striving very hard to find patterns and things linking up that we also see false patterns all the time. Um, you know, that, uh, that that's it's, it's almost a byproduct of, of to make sense
1: of the world. Absolutely right. And you, you hit a key here, which is that's the brain's function. The brain's function is to look at the environment, make sense of it in a way that helps us survive. Now, if you, if you damage that, that brain in some way, and we can damage it by virtue of genetics, by virtue of having schizophrenia or a variety of other things or you, abusing amphetamines, what it means is that the brain is no longer doing what it's supposed to do well. It is, it, is, it is trying to make sense of the world, but it's not doing a good job of it. And I think that you, you need to view paranoia as almost the default mo- mode for human beings. If you can't make sense of what's going on in the world, you better assume that people are out to get you and take a defensive stance because that way you're going to survive. To not do that really opens you up. So when people develop delirium, which is probably the most extreme form of um, kind of a brain disturbance, this is when people get infections or dehydrated um, uh, and so forth, you see them all becoming paranoid um, um, because, again, their brain's not making good sense. And so the assumption is, hey, people are out to get me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to protect myself.
0: Thank you for calling us, Bob. Thank you. So would somebody who has shown no signs of paranoia start... Uh, Cha- developing paranoia over time. It, is there something that might happen. trigger it?
1: Yeah, it, it, that's there's factors that certainly can happen. Um, uh, illnesses. Again, I mentioned delirium is a very, very common source of this. Um, it's also um, uh, we also see and this is a little bit more rare, but we see individuals, mostly females, who um, when they reach middle age um, and are postmenopausal, many of them will develop a kind of late onset schizophrenia that is characterized by. Um, paranoia. It's probably related to reductions in their estrogen levels as estrogen tends to be kind of protective of those kinds of things.
0: But we see schizophrenia often develop in uh, late teens and early 20s as the brain changes. Does, exactly. is, is this a, a time when paranoia suddenly shows up in many people?
1: Yes. Exactly. That, for, 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 well, In particular, within schizophrenia. The evidence suggests that, that paranoia can develop in, in children or that they can become uh, increasingly suspicious and that one can develop this um, pretty much throughout the lifespan. Um, but within the context of schizophrenia, you're absolutely right. This is really a young person's um, uh, condition, and very frequently we see paranoia emerge within that.
0: Is there a way to treat the clinical paranoia?
1: I believe so. You mentioned earlier kind of the delusional form, and so that would be the, the, the most uh, severe form of it. And, and we're probably not as, as good at treating something like that. Um, but when you get to lower levels of paranoia, things like paranoid personality disorder, um, it, it's probably the case that we can, we can uh, treat this effectively with psychotherapy uh, or psychotherapy with some uh, medication added on. The problem is, is that we really have not studied paranoia very well. Can so brain scans
0: reveal anything about it, an MRI, uh, with somebody who's going through a paranoid fantasy?
1: There have been very few studies, and none of them are conclusive, that have, that have in a sense, shown us a circuit or, or something in the brain that we might target um, where paranoia lives, so to speak. So damage to a wide variety of structures in the brain seems to result in, in paranoia.
0: Uh, I'd imagine it's also challenging to find research subjects. People don't want to, to say, I'm paranoid.
1: Well, and, and, and it goes beyond that. You know, With a paranoid individual, they, the problem is you, not them. You know, you're the one that's persecuting them. You're the one that's harassing them. You're the one that should be in treatment, quite frankly. They're the innocent victim. And so you're absolutely right. Most people with paranoia do not necessarily show up um, um, at hospitals or in clinics because they, they're not the ones that they feel have the problem. You know, and it's interesting, you mentioned earlier about are there events that can happen. You know, following 9-11, there were lots of surveys that went around asking people about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, especially, and, and not surprisingly, what, what you found is there was a high rate of this in, in New York City and the surrounding areas, and, you know, you asked someone in Oklahoma and you didn't see too much PTSD, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. No one asked about paranoia. I I did a a study with a couple of my students a few years ago where we basically just called hospitals throughout the country and said, hey, did you see increases in in patients with paranoia after 9-11? And not surprisingly, we found increases in in, the New York City area um, um, and in other areas in the East Coast relative to the rest of the country. And the importance of that is that... I would imagine that
0: that also follows mass shootings and uh, an awareness of uh, a rise in gun sales in your
1: area. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And you know, when you talk about hospitalized people, they're the worst of the worst. So for every one person that gets in the hospital, you probably got a dozen or 20 or so people who have lower levels. Um, so these kinds of events can make a difference, absolutely.
0: Aren't some people who are being bullied accused of being paranoid when they complain?
1: Well, there's that's that's always that, that whole, uh, you know, even paranoids have enemies kind of, uh, um, kind of issue. Um, and, uh, you know, the literature on bullying is an interesting one that's just emerging. It's a hot topic in psychology these days. And I don't think we have good studies that really indicate whether if you have been bullied, it will result in uh, uh, paranoia um, later on.
0: What about drugs? People will often say, well, you smoke marijuana and you start feeling paranoid.
1: Yeah, and, 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 and that, that's, that's an important issue. So uh, there's lots of evidence to suggest that if you start using um, um, uh, cannabis, especially at a young age, it does increase your risk for developing uh, psychotic kinds of things like paranoia. So, you know, these the states that have legalized this, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the next 10 years or so um, with rates of paranoia.
0: Do all psychotropic drugs uh, induce paranoia on some level,
1: or can they? But um, potentially all drugs of any sort can, only to the extent that they cause delirium. But there are certain drugs that clearly do. Uh, amphetamines and cocaine are notorious, in part because we know that they cause the changes in the brain chemistry that are associated with paranoia. So those drugs in particular, and then when you get past that, you have drugs like ketamine um, and PCP can also um, uh, uh, you know, cause paranoia.
0: My guess is David J. Laporte who is a professor of psychology and director of clinical training in the Clinical Psychology Doctoral Program at Indiana University in Pennsylvania. His book, Paranoid, Exploring Suspicion from the Dubious to the Delusional, I'm assuming this uh, comes out of your own experiences as a doctor. Do you see a lot of paranoid patients?
1: I, I do, and it's, it's interesting. I don't have a practice that specializes in paranoia, but I see a lot of patients that have dementia or other kinds of clinical conditions, and it's very, very common.
0: And the book is published by Prometheus Books. We will take a little break now, and when we come back, we'll be taking your calls. Our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate and we are back with david j laporte his book paranoid exploring suspicion from the dubious to the delusional published by prometheus books we're talking about paranoia on today's please explain and pat from somerset new jersey hi you're on the air
3: Hi Leonard, thanks for taking my call. This is a great, uh, a great guest to have, very helpful information. I am interested in um, knowing if uh, with dementia and some other uh, brain problems that develop, particularly in the elderly, the opposite to paranoia does occur um, with, um, instead of being uh, too fearful of, of others, to be too trusting of others, and whether that is uh, one of the factors that's allowing uh, scammers to um, to defraud the elderly, call up and say uh, you've won, Publishers Clearing House, send me uh, five thousand uh, dollars as pre-taxes, uh, so you'll get your two million dollar check type of scams.
1: Yes, you're, you're right. And I think part of the problem with dementia, of course, is that it can affect different brain regions in different ways. And so you're absolutely right. And one of the brain regions that it can affect is the frontal part of the brain, the frontal lobes, and, and that part of the brain is responsible for making decisions and for evaluating information and so forth. And, you're out, and, and as a result of that, yes, they can be taken advantage of, in part because their brain really does not process the information well enough to alert them that this is something that they should be suspicious of.
3: Hmm. Okay.
0: Thank you for your call. Susanna from Westfield, New Jersey. You're on the air.
3: Hi. Uh, My mother is 82 years old, and she has Alzheimer's, and this past spring and summer she developed a severe, severe paranoia. She was convinced that the cleaning woman was stealing things from her, but of course it was her poor memory that was misplacing them. And ultimately I had to have her hospitalized for 11 days in a geriatric psychiatric unit. Um, We tried four different antipsychotic medications and we finally hit on one that significantly helped. She's about 90% less paranoid than she was before, Um, but what I thought was really remarkable was how you could not reason with her she thought that a set of keys she had found that had a little label that said file cabinet for her file cabinet key had been made by the cleaning woman by contacting the lock maker of the file cabinet etc cetera, etc cetera. and when i tried to explain to her that uh, that was my handwriting on the label that i had made the copies of the keys uh for the file cabinet she just said well that's your version of the story so it was really a remarkable experience in <clears throat> watching someone I, I loved and respected become completely and totally irrational, and yet be hyper-rational in their ability to rationalize how something happened.
1: Yeah, and, and, and how, how creative they can be in piecing together um, little bits of information that otherwise are not connected in any way, but for them is absolutely crystal clear. And and you know part of the problem, of course, is that the degree to which you disagree with them, the degree to which you keep saying, no, it's this, it's not that, then suddenly you become part of the conspiracy. So it's not just the cleaning lady now, but you must be in on this as well, since you don't believe her and since you seem to be so insistent that it's not the cleaning lady. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. There's one of the, the, the major aspects about paranoia is that they really do lack insight into this. They do not see how this can be manufactured by their brain um, and um, and and part of what's characteristic then is that they don't entertain al- alternate explanations, and that's why reasoning often just does not work. But
0: she also would have was suggesting that her daughter was in conspiracy with the cleaning lady. Uh, are people who are engaged in serious conspiratorial thinking being paranoid on some level?
1: I think so, um, and this is an, a very interesting area, um, but um, I, I believe that you will find that people who do believe in conspiracies, generally speaking, have a stance towards others that is, is, is suspicious, that is mistrusting, and so forth. And, of course, there's a very thin line here because, you know, uh, 15 years ago, if you said, you know, I think the NSA is spying on me, you know, we would have been labeled paranoid. And, of course, now we would say that you were prescient as a result of, uh, of believing that. And so the degree to which we need to be wary about what the government or others are doing versus being overly suspicious is is a thin line indeed. And unfortunately, we don't have good psychological studies of people who are conspiracy theorists.
0: Let's take another call. Uh, Mary Beth, hi, you're on the air.
3: Hi. um, I had a question about the relationship between hypochondria and paranoia. Um, whether that's sort of considered a type of paranoia, and also the relationship between anxiety disorders um, and paranoia and the effects of anti-anxiety medication on patients that have paranoia, or do people who have anxiety eventually develop a type of paranoia?
1: Well, dealing with the uh, hypochondriasis first, really there's no relationship there. These are people that are are just really very much focused on... Um, their bodies and their bodies breaking down and they're in ill health despite reassurances. Now, if they believe that the physician is not telling them something, that that they're hiding something from them or that someone has poisoned them and that that's why they feel ill, okay, then maybe we're talking about paranoia, but otherwise they're not related. Now, the issue of anxiety is a little bit more complex because If you put yourself in a paranoid shoes, if you really believe that everybody was talking behind your back or out to get you and plotting against you, you'd you'd be pretty anxious. It would be a very uncomfortable thing, and that's what what most people with paranoia experience, anxiety. Um, But it's not really an anxiety disorder per se, Um, uh, and and we don't have much of it. I mean, as, as I said earlier, any drug can, with any one individual, cause paranoia in, in the sense that it is almost an, a, a, a bad reaction to the drug, and, and drugs in large quantities can do this. But I don't know that we have any evidence that the anti-anxiety drugs themselves, generally speaking, will, can cause um, uh, paranoia. But by the same token, it, that none of those drugs really also reduce um, paranoia. Even if they do reduce anxiety, the person still is going to be overly suspicious.
0: Has it been determined that people who were involved in mass shootings and bombings like Jared Loughner or John DuPont or Adam Lanza all suffered from various forms of paranoid delusions?
1: We don't know about uh, Lanza in particular, but we certainly have evidence that, you know, uh, starting with Timothy McVeigh, he thought the, you know, the government put a computer chip in his butt. Um, uh, Swing Cho at Virginia Tech, he was, felt that he had been prosecuted. Jared Lochner, you mentioned, absolutely. Um, uh, I think the latest big one was um, Aaron Alexis, the uh, uh, Washington Naval Yard uh, guy who killed 12. And he, he, was, he was going from hotel room to hotel room because he felt that the government was beaming in ultra low frequency microwave attacks against him.
0: What about religious leaders who predict an apocalyptic date?
1: Yeah, they're, they're, they're an interesting lot. Um, are, are they paranoid? I'm you know, not sure. And, you know, you can have a delusion that's not paranoia. So you can believe, uh, for example, that um, uh, somebody is in, in, in love with you, that, you know, I believe that Angelina Jolie is passionately in love with me. Uh, and you that's too? i not really paranoid, but that's a, it may be a delusion, unless she is, in which case, you know, give her my number, please.
0: <laughs> Jonathan from Long Island, huh? you're on the air
2: really interesting subject. Uh, I'm curious about, you know, I've only really experienced paranoia when I felt sort of guilty about something and it sort of induced paranoid, more general paranoid feelings. And also I'm curious in like the association between like uh, narcissism and paranoia.
1: Well, there is kind of a narcissism uh, involved with paranoia because if you are being singled out for persecution, then there must be something pretty special about you. So there (laughs) there is that kind of aspect to it. Um, the issue about guilt is an interesting one, and I, and I hadn't uh, quite frankly considered um, uh, that, and I don't know that there's evidence uh, uh, that um, uh, that you know feelings of guilt can in some sense result in feelings of suspiciousness and paranoia.
0: Let's take another call. Bob from Brooklyn. Hi, you're on the air.
2: Yes, hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Well, I'd like to ask a little bit and tell a little bit. Uh, I was once involved in a case where people – changed and reconstructed their wills based on paranoid delusions and cutting their family out of the will. And it went to court and it was successfully tried. The judge wanted try it all the way out. He felt it might be the only will ever overturned in a hundred years in that county. But it paid really to make a settlement. So what can you say about these types of cases? Uh, the meanings to families, because it's not, it's not an isolated incident. Uh, of course, these people slowly uh, added each family member to their, what the analysts used to call the pseudo-community. And, uh, you know, I think it's something that affects families quite regularly. And uh, you know, and you, it can be if you make a will under duress, and we could consider paranoia, a delusional disorder with paranoia, a type of duress. Then you know, what do you know about other cases and and this
1: situation? Yeah, you're you're right. Now, when, when, most often when this happens, it usually happens within the context of of dementia, like Alzheimer's. So, like the previous um, um, uh, caller, you know, you get someone who's starting to develop dementia and they're losing things and not remembering, and so they start to become paranoid. And then they start to change the will because their family's stealing from them. Um, that's actually a fairly easy one to deal with because it's easy to demonstrate that someone has you know, Alzheimer's. You, you know, you have someone tested and, and they can prove that. Now, when you start getting the more rare kinds of conditions in, in which people are just becoming purely paranoid, there they don't have any memory deficits or any other kinds of problems. Then it becomes a little bit tougher. Fortunately, those are really um, you know they're 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 relatively rare. Um, generally speaking. If someone's paranoid, they've probably been paranoid a good portion of their life, and it is somewhat rare for someone to develop it um, uh, kind of spontaneously later in life. Uh, there are the exceptions. I mentioned um, older women can tend to, uh, middle-aged, you know, 50-year-old women or so can can, can do this as well. Although, again, they, they tend to remain relatively rare.
0: We have talked a lot on the show about concerns about uh, how much we can be surveilled these days. Almost everyone has a smartphone um, and uh, Supposedly, uh, if government wants to, they can, or, or the telephone company, they can tell where we are and what we're saying and who we're speaking with. Um, is that leading to a different kind of sense of, of paranoia or threat anyway?
1: I think I think it's, it's part of a number of background factors, all of which can tr- elevate our levels of suspiciousness and result in increased paranoia. So you have that, you have computer hackers, you have... You know, omnipresent security cameras. You have license plate readers and dr- and drones, and the threat of uh, of terrorism and so forth. All of these, our, our brain takes this information in, it evaluates it, and it comes to the conclusion that this is an unsafe environment, um, and it's going to ratchet up our level of of suspiciousness overall.
0: Robert from the Upper West Side. Hi, you're on there?
2: Uh, yeah, hi. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, Thank you for taking my call. A quick question. I I hear that you've discussed um, marijuana, prescription drugs, um, and I'm wondering if uh, alcohol
1: is a potentiator uh, for for paranoia. Certainly it can be. Alcohol tends to take an interesting form. Alcohol tends to produce what is often referred to as alcoholic jealousy. And, um, uh, and, and what that is basically is that the alcoholic comes to believe that their spouse has been uh, unfaithful to them. Uh, and this takes on the form of almost a classic paranoid illusion that, you know, you can argue with them, you can present all the evidence, and they are firmly convinced that their spouse is, um, uh, you know, is, is unfaithful. Now, does it, does it tend to result in other forms of paranoia? People are plotting against them, you know, CIA's monitoring, those kinds of things. No, it, does, it doesn't tend to do that.
0: Now, are we going through a period where uh, we're seeing more paranoia of one sort or another? We've had it in the past with the internment of the the Japanese, for example, uh, during World War II. uh, There was a certain amount of paranoia following Pearl Harbor but uh, today with Paris and all the other things and the uh, the arguments over whether we should allow any Muslim immigrants into this country, uh, are we uh, experiencing kind of a, a national paranoia?
1: I, I think so, and I think what it is is that, it's, you know, we're taking this information in, and, and you can kind of move up the, the spectrum. So, you know, we, we become cautious, and then we become guarded, and then we become wary, and then we become mistrustful and suspicious and eventually paranoid. And it, I think it depends on where your boat is floated to begin with, so if you are generally speaking a guarded, mistrustful kind of person, and now you see these kinds of terrorist attacks and so forth, now you're starting to become more suspicious and, and paranoid so the, the, the higher up you are on that spectrum to begin with, the more likely it is you're going to get pushed above the level into paranoia. I think these kinds of events make all Americans everybody more wary uh, uh, you know so if you walk on a plane and you see uh, you know a handful of of uh, young, um, 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 Middle Eastern-looking individuals seated there, are you going to feel a little bit differently than you did even a month ago? Well, let's listen to
0: one of the presidential candidates uh, talking about accepting Syrian refugees into the country.
2: We're taking in people. We have no idea who they are. They have no identification. They have no papers. They're creating papers. They're making up papers. You have people coming in, and I heard, as of this morning, they're already missing one or two people. They came in and they're gone. They're missing. So I think it's a way that, you know, it could very well be the ultimate Trojan horse. We're going to have to see. Hopefully not.
0: Well, we're going to have to leave it there. (laughs) David J. Laporte is a professor of psychology at. uh, Oh, uh, do you want to respond to that?
1: Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, The the whole, um, you know, that people are coming in and that they're going, you know, Trojan horse and and so forth. You know, people have been coming in for for long periods of time, Um, uh, and it's it's only in against the backdrop of and 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 you know, if you're a political candidate, you want to play on fears. Um, Fear does work, and what better way than to tap into an already elevated level of fear and suspiciousness regarding a particular um, uh, ethnic group, much li- as you said, much like the da- Japanese after the attack on Pearl Harbor. It's often the other. Yes, yes.
0: Okay, now I'm going to tell people about you. David J. Laporte is a professor of psychology and director of clinical training in the Clinical Psychology Doctoral Program at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And his book is Paranoid exploring suspicion from the dubious to the delusional with a little uh, parenthetical at the top says, no, this book is not about you, although it might be. It's published by Prometheus Books. Thank you so much for being on our Please Explain segment today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.